Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, and we'll be looking at chapter 17 again this evening. Uh, if any of the children here grabbed one of the children's ESV Bibles in the vestibule there, that's on page 1328. John chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, but before I do with God's Word open, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this evening as we bring this Sabbath day to a close, trusting that you have used our time today for your glory and for our rest and our good. We ask that you would encourage our hearts through our time of worship as we sing to you and pray to you and confess to one another our shared faith, and as we hear from your Son in his word. Speak, Lord. We are listening, and we would see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. John chapter 17. This will sound familiar if you were here this morning. We looked at all of John 17, but we're going to be looking at John 17, 1 through 5 tonight. This is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, uh, if you were here with us this morning, you'll know that we're in part two out of four, uh, looking at John 17, Jesus uh, great high priestly prayer, or as we're calling it, the Lord's Prayer. Properly speaking, this is the prayer that the Lord prayed rather than the one that he taught us to pray. Uh, But this morning we did sort of a a wave top overview, 30,000 foot look at what does Christ pray for you. And if you were here, you'll recall a couple of the highlights of the text. Uh, Christ prays for your perseverance for your protection, such as it were. Uh, He prays for your sanctification and ultimately for your glorification. Remember verse 24, that high watermark of Christ's prayer, Father, I desire that those you have given me be with me where I am. Uh, This evening, however, what we're going to do is focus in on a narrower scope of the text, verses 1 through 5, but not to ask the question, what does Christ pray for you? but rather to ask the question, who is the Christ who prays for you? It's a different question, and it's an important one. I think it's important for a number of reasons, but not least of which, imagine that some random person, uh, pick a person nearby you, pick me, pick Neil or your own spouse or your child or your parents, if they prayed the things that Jesus prayed for us in John 17, your heart would probably be warmed. It would be lovely for someone who cares about you and your soul to ask God to pray for your protection, your perseverance, your sanctification, your glorification. 
But warm your heart is about all it could really do. But when Christ prays for you, when Christ prays specifically for you these things that we looked at today and that we'll look at over the coming uh, couple of uh, Sundays, or a couple of uh, sermons, I should say, it gives us such great assurance and comfort because it's Christ who's praying for you. And so we want to take a step back while we look in closer at who is the Christ who prays for you. Um, My intention or my hope is that this uh, sermon, these couple of verses that we'll look at this evening, will result in an overwhelming sense of peace and of security and, in fact, of doxology, knowing that it's Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the self-same glorified Son, uh, who prays this prayer for us. So we're going to answer the question, who is this Christ? But what I want you to be asking yourself is this. Do I know him as this Christ? And what do I mean by that? I don't want to over-explain the question, but uh, we here who love and know the Lord Jesus Christ, love and know the Lord Jesus Christ according to his self-revelation in Scripture, but sometimes our minds kind of focus in on the parts of Christ that uh, appeal to us most. And so sometimes Christ ends up as this sort of soft, genteel, you know, come to me and I'll give you rest, and that's as if that's all he ever said. And we can sort of minimize the whole Christ into a part Christ that really speaks to our uh, personal needs or our flesh. Well, Christ is revealing a lot about who he is in these five verses, and so my question for you is, do you know this Christ the one who's full of glory, the one who's full of authority, and the one who's fully successful in all that God sent him to do. And what are the implications of that? So those are the three things that will draw our attention to this evening. He is the Christ of glory, first and foremost. Secondly, he is the Christ with authority. And that kind of rubs us wrong in our day of individualism and autonomy. And finally, he's the Christ who succeeds. He's the Christ who succeeds in all that he does. Notice the word glory is repeated in verses 1, 4, and 5. The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all that you sent me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have glorified you by accomplishing your work, and now I'm asking you, Father, to glorify me in your presence again. Now, this is a remarkable statement of Jesus' divine self-awareness. Right now, there are a number of critical scholars who will suggest that Jesus never claimed to be God. He claimed to be a good teacher. He claimed to be a man of God. He used some nomenclature that was kind of questionable, but he didn't actually claim to be God. There is no clearer text in all of the Bible than this one, which ex- in which Christ explicitly claims to be God. And it's a remarkable statement of his divine self-awareness. God in Isaiah 48, as well as Isaiah 42 says, I am God alone, and I will not share my glory with another. So God has made explicit statement concerning his own uh, uh, glory, 
his own worship, his own being, that no one in all of space and time and history is equal to him and deserves to share in the glory that he alone has. Right? So God alone is worthy of glory. So how can Christ then claim to have shared glory with God before the world was founded? How can Christ even ask to be glorified by the Father if God has said, I will share my glory with no one else? So Jesus would have to be one of two things to make a statement like this. He would have to be the most pridefully arrogant person who ever lived I've always had glory with you, God, from before the foundation of the world, and give me it back now. Or he would have to be God to make that statement. We've always had glory together, Father, from before the universe was created, and now I'm coming back to you. Restore to me my glory, which has been veiled by this human flesh, that glory which was uh, peeked into on the Mount of Transfiguration by a select few, and now flows freely from his glorified body in heaven for all to see. Jesus was fully aware of his divine nature. He knew that he had been sent by the Father from heaven and that he was the incarnate second person of the Trinity. So this passage, John 17, 1 through 5, really stands at the core of confessions of faith that we use here at Christ Covenant Church. Think about the words of the Nicene Creed, which says, We believe in one God, one, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Now, it doesn't make him separate because the following clauses say this, he is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of the same essence, substance as the Father. He's the same God. The second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and came down here for us. Who's the Christ who prays for you? He's not just some great teacher or great man. He's God incarnate, veiled in human flesh. He's the one who prays for you in John 17. Again, go back to the comments we closed with this morning. What confidence should that give you that the one who prays for you is the one who answers his own prayer? The Athanasian Creed says nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, shared glory with each other. So in everything... As was said earlier, we worship the Trinity in unity and the unity in Trinity. Jesus, in other words, can ask the Father to glorify him because it's inherent glory that he's asking for. It's his. It's already his. By divine right, it's his glory. And he veiled it in flesh for us and for our salvation. He came down and was crucified and died and was buried and descended into hell. And the third day rose again from the dead for our justification. All of that God accomplished for us. God accomplished for us. Y'all know Kyle Phillips, right? Kyle is one of the biggest, tallest men that I know. There are others that I know that maybe would give Kyle a run for his money, but he's a pretty tall guy. I would love to have him on my side. 
if something went bad here tonight, I want Kyle with me. Everybody, we all agree with that. If something goes bad tonight, I want Kyle standing right next to me. I would love to have a guy like that on my team. Even if we just finish worship tonight and go into the fellowship hall and a breakout game of rugby starts, I want Kyle on my team. Okay? God is on your team. God is for you. Imagine, consider, think for a moment about the comfort and strength offered in a reality like that. God is for you. That's the Christ who prays for you. Full of glory, eternal glory. Now, our problem is that we try to glorify ourselves. We seek our own glory, and when we do, we do so at the expense of God's glory. We try to redirect glory that God deserves and orient it towards ourselves. But when Jesus says, give me glory, that shared glory with God, he can say that because the glory he receives, the Father receives. So in what ways do you seek to glorify yourself at God's expense? That might be a helpful question, a, a, a diagnostic question to ask yourself. In what ways do you seek to steal God's glory? Now, I ask this with a bit of fear and hesitation. This is a tough question for people in my particular role to ask, for ministers especially, and others who serve vocationally in kingdom work. It's easy to try to glorify ourselves, to try to gain a following or a certain level of status or a platform, rather than confessing with John the Baptist that we must decrease so Christ might increase in glory. Rather than saying with the saints of old, when we are dead and happily forgotten, many men and women say, I don't want to die, and I certainly don't want to be forgotten. You know, Sinclair Ferguson is one of the greatest, uh, most prolific writers and greatest preachers of our age, and he now, in his 70s, is living in Aberdeen, Scotland, and is the stated evening preacher at a small church plant. And he says, I preach on some evenings in order to give my pastor a break. What sort of humility must it take? Now, hopefully, he'll never hear this. But imagine the humility it must take for a man of his stature to say, I'm happy to take the evening worship service so my minister, under whose preaching I sit, can get a rest. If more men thought that way about gospel ministry, our churches would be in a far better state. Well, here Jesus is considering his past glory, the glory that I've shared with you from before the world began, and he's considering also his future glory, the fact that I'm going back to the presence of God to share in the glory that we used to share. I'm sure many of you hear echoes of Hebrews 12, verse 2, where it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Don't miss this. Jesus went to the cross knowing that it would result in glory, honor, and praise. Not that it would end in death, but in exaltation. That the cross for Christ ended in glorification, but it was glorification through death. It was glorification through suffering. Do we think about our sufferings in this life in those terms? 
I admit, trust me, I admit, I know that it's hard in the middle of it all to realize that God has a purpose and plan for these things that we endure. Isn't it? It is hard, isn't it? You know that. Uh, let's not lie to one another and say, no, 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 I know what James 1 says. I count it all joy when I experience trials of various kinds. We know that we should, and by the Spirit's power, we're able to more and more. But life is difficult sometimes. It's just really hard because of sin. Ours and others. But the Bible tells us that like our Savior, we can endure suffering like the cross, despising what it does to us and how it feels, but knowing that through suffering, hope is produced and endurance is produced and steadfastness is produced and ultimately glorification is promised to us. So how do you handle trials of various kinds? Do we suffer in light of future glory? Do we endure trials and ridicule and sickness and God's fatherly discipline even, knowing that the end is our glorification and eternal happiness? Now, I know I've used this illustration before, but it works well here. Many of you know that one of our own, a young man by the name of Jared, is at Marine Corps boot camp right now. And uh, from what I understand, this Thursday, his platoon or his company will step off for what's uh, known as the crucible, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's 54 hours, you have one meal the entire time that you're supposed to split up over the course of that time, and you get two four-hour sleep breaks. They'll hike some 70 miles over the course of these 54 hours through force marches at night and during the day and accomplish tasks that were I to detail them for you, many of our feebler folk would pass out where you sit. Jared is going through this not because he loves boot camp, but because he knows that the other side of that is that coveted eagle globe and anchor that only a few earn. Do we endure suffering like that? Christ did. He knew that the joy that was set before him was not only his glorification and exaltation at the right hand of the Father, but your salvation, a part of the glory that he receives, that he received in his suffering, was the knowledge that you and I would be brought with him, in him, into glory. That's the sort of Christ who prays for you. If he prayed that you would be with him in glory... And then he demonstrated his skin in the game by going to the cross. How much confidence ought we to have that that's where we'll be when this mortal life is over? What good news all across the pages of Scripture. Well, Christ has glory. It's his. It's preexistent glory. And he deserves all of it. But he also remarks about his authority. Look at verse 2. He says to the Father, you have given me, him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is such a necessary reminder for us, especially as we observe the world around us in all of its chaos. Uh, Jesus' authority extends far beyond the walls of the church. Jesus does have authority over the church. He's been given as head over the church, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. But it's not just authority over those that the Father has given him. It's over all flesh, he says. You've given me authority over all flesh. Over all flesh. 
Indeed, after his resurrection, he'll appear to his disciples on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 28, and he'll tell them that all authority, that's a, that's a pretty wide scope of stuff, is mine. All of it. Do we live like that's true? When you're scrolling through your favorite news feed or flicking through the channels or listening to things on the radio or watching the world around you or smelling the smoke in your nostrils because smoke from Canada has made it down to North Carolina or thinking about men like Jared who are having to join the Marine Corps because of the threat of war all around us or your own body starts to fail or you think about our politicians and and the some good and a lot of bad stuff that they do and you think, who's really running this show? Jesus is, and he has all authority over all flesh to do with what he wills. As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch in all the created cosmos over which Christ does not stand and declare mine. He has all authority. It's important that we remind ourselves of this, even as Bill reminded us last week in his sermon on Revelation chapter 12, that even our enemy is bound by the leash of Christ's authority. Even our enemy is held by the leash of Christ's authority. And this was especially needful for Jesus' disciples to hear in this hour before his betrayal, on the eve of his crucifixion. The next 24 hours to them would appear as though Jesus had lost all control, as if things had fallen into chaos and God had been caught napping. Now, I won't ask you to admit this out loud, because none of us would. Many of us probably won't admit this to ourselves were we to take a moment of introspection to consider it. But have you ever thought that God has lost control? Where is God in all this? Where could he be? Children getting sick and dying. Relationships breaking up after years and decades. Diagnoses that you never thought you'd have. Other people maybe, but not me. Death and all the stuff that happens in this life that we don't know how to explain rightly and if we're being honest with ourselves sometimes it feels like the world has descended into chaos jesus reminds us here like he reminded his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion the most chaotic 24 hours in history where the son of god himself was nailed to a cross and died i've got all authority don't you worry. Remember what I said back in chapter 10? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I'll lift it back up again. Do we know that Christ? The one who has all authority, all authority in every sphere of existence, in every place in the universe? We know from Isaiah 53 that the cross, far from being an act of chaos, far from being a moment of of God's absence from the scene. It was the pleasure of God, the will of God to crucify his son. And the disciples say as much in Acts chapter 4. Here in this city we're gathered together against your, you and your son 
Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Israelites and uh, all the Gentiles and so forth to do what your hand had predestined to take place. God never lost control. He's always been in control, and he maintains absolute authority over everything. And let me just bring this a little bit more personally home here. Christ doesn't just maintain authority over redemptive history. He has absolute authority over your personal history. Now, if you're like me, you look back over the landscape of your life and, oh, hang your head and cover your eyes and kind of hope that no one's looking because they might catch a glimpse of who you were before or maybe what you even did today. Christ has authority over that. And he works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He's used the sin in your lives and in mine and the bad things that you've done and that I've done And the wicked things that other people have done to us and that we've done to others to move all of history and all of life to accomplish his perfect will according to the counsel of his will. Do you know that Christ who has all that authority? Brothers and sisters, when life seems to trip and fall and ends up sideways, this is the Christ that you need to cry out to. The one who has authority and who does everything perfectly. Perfectly. Jesus' prayer that he would be restored to glory meant going to the cross. I I often talk about um, dangerous prayers. Prayers that we pray that uh, if we thought about what we were actually saying, we might say, "Uh, let me think about how to phrase that differently. Here's an example of one. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a dangerous prayer for you. Are you sure you mean it? Do you want that to happen in your life? Do you want God's kingdom to come and his rule and reign to happen over your life like that? Because for Jesus, it meant the cross. Not my will, but thine be done. My will is to do the, 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 my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. That meant the cross for him. Imagine if you knew in advance how God would answer your prayer. Would you pray it? If you knew in advance how God would answer your prayer for faith and grace and all sorts of things like that, would you pray it? Well, one of my favorite men of old, if I ever have a fifth child, um, that's never going to happen, but if I ever did, or if one of my kids... Uh, needed a name change for, you know, witness protection or something like that. Uh, I would change his name to John Newton. John Newton has written some of the most amazing hymns and penned some of the most beautiful letters that a human's hand have ever written. Someone once said that Samuel Rutherford's letters are the closest thing to inspired writing outside of Scripture, and I would put Rutherford right below Newton. He wrote a hymn, really a poem, that's been turned into a hymn that many of us may be familiar with, but perhaps you're not. And I'm going to take the moment to read it because it's that meaningful and helpful. Newton wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow. Now think about this before you pray next time. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's a good prayer to pray. 
"'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost brought me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the evil, the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, faith, love, and every grace. Humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? It's in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Christ asked to be restored to glory. And it took him to the cross. When we pray for faith and love and every grace and the subduing of our sins, sometimes it takes us there too. But who's the Christ who prays for us? Who's the Christ who prayed for our being kept and preserved in this world? Who's the Christ that prayed that we might be more and more set apart unto holy living by the truth of God's word? Who's the Christ that prayed that you and I would be with him in glory forever? The same Christ who went to the cross. So we can pray prayers like this, knowing who carries us into heaven. Christ's authority is universal. His glory is inherent and his success has already been accomplished. Now this one might leave us scratching your heads. Look at verse 4 with me uh, as Jesus wraps up his sort of uh, uh, self-focused part of his prayer, if I can say it that way. You know, verses 1 through 5 is really Christ's prayer for himself. And he says here in verse 4 something that, uh, if you're paying attention to the chronology of the text, might cause you a little bit of confusion. He says, I accomplished, past tense, the work that you gave me to do. He did? I mean, the cross is tomorrow in the chronology of it all. If Christ was sent to die for the sins of his people, how can he say here beforehand that I've accomplished what you sent me to do? Well, it's the sureness, the definitiveness of his prayer that grounds our assurance of salvation. Christ did accomplish what he was sent to do, to grant eternal life to those who are his, to accomplish and apply redemption, particularly to those that God the Father had given him. It is Jesus' steadfast confidence that he will do what the Father sent him to do, that allows him to pray with such assurance. 
You see, the Bible throughout its pages, and, and we don't have time to detail all of this tonight, but throughout its pages, it paints a picture of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in their inner Trinitarian perfection and unity before time began, making a pact among themselves, a promise to himself to redeem people from every tribe and language and nation, to redeem us out of the mire of sin and the swamp of death and Satan's grip, and to bring us into heaven by the Son applied by the Spirit. And it's this pre-temporal plan of redemption that Christ was sent to accomplish. And he was so committed to its goal and so committed to its accomplishment that he can speak in perfected terms like this even before it's done. I have accomplished the will you sent me to do. We think about Paul, right? Paul is so sure. Think about this for a second. In Romans 8 verse 30, Paul is so sure that what God intends for you will happen that he can speak about future events in past tense terms. Those whom he called in the past, he justified in the past, he glorified in the future. But he speaks of it as a done deal because he knows, he knows what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory and grace. And Jesus can say the same thing here in John chapter 17. He knew that the promise made between the Father, Son, and Spirit would result in glory for God and salvation for his people. And there is no one or no thing higher than he could have made this promise by, which is why our Trinitarian Godhead engaged in this promise with himself before the world was made. And Christ came into the world to save sinners, and that's what he did. Now, John Flavel, the Puritan, helps us to see how this plan of God, it sounds very heady, right? I'm talking about pre-temporal covenants and pacts uh, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit about the salvation of his people. But Flavel gives us this sort of imaginary dialogue between the Father and the Son. And I want to read that for us to give us a sort of uh, uh, sanctified imagination here uh, into what that might have sounded like. And remember, this is done for you. This is done for you and for me. The father says, my son, look here, a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or it will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Christ replies, Oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. Our record of debt was canceled. That's what he's saying here. At my hand shalt thou require it. I would rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should, they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. But my son, says God, 
If thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might, except no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And Christ replied, let it be so. Charge it all upon me, for I am able to discharge it. And though it prove to be an undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, I am content to undertake it. Who's the Christ who prays for you? It's the one who shared eternal glory with the Father and laid it aside to be found in the form of a servant and experienced death, even death on the cross for people like me and people like you. He grants eternal life to all those that the Father has given him. He's being res- he was restored to the glory he shared with the Father at his ascension, and we will share in that glory with him for all eternity, basking in the light of his radiant, brilliant face. He's the one who succeeded. He's already accomplished all that the Father sent him to do. The oft-used illustration, June 6, 1944, D-Day was the guarantee of May 8, 1945, V-E-Day. Because of the work done on those beaches, the war was already won. The battles just weren't over yet. And Christ has already accomplished what the Father sent him to do, to grant eternal life to his people. Let me ask you this question as we close. Have you placed your trust in Jesus alone as Savior, as Lord, as Christ? Have you laid hold of the eternal life that he came to offer to know God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent? Have you considered the Bible's claims about him, his own claims here about himself, and then submitted to him in faith? Have you repented unto eternal life? As many of you are becoming more aware, my favorite question in the Shorter Catechism is question 87. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, doth with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Have you repented? Do you hate your sin? Are you aware of your sinfulness? And have you contemplated the mercy of God in Jesus? This Jesus, the eternally glorious Jesus, who veiled his nature that we might see his face and benefit from his life, death, and resurrection. Have you trusted in him? I hope that you have. I pray that you will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this evening having heard from your Son's own mouth who he is, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, our Savior, the one who prays for his people, things that we can't even begin to contemplate, let alone pray for ourselves. Would you strengthen us for the trials that we'll endure? Will you remind us of the grief that he endured for our joy? And would you help us, Lord, to draw our, be drawn closer into the love that you share with your Son from before the world began? 
that we might be one with you even as we are to be one with one another. Help us to do these things by your Spirit and for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.